accept that you're going to fail. There's a great thing that uh, in, in the world of uh, agile development where one of the guys said, you know, plan to throw away your first model because you will anyway. We know that learning to fail and embracing it is so important. And I mean, our education system doesn't, doesn't dwell enough on this. It's more about getting stuff right than it is about people exploring and learning. We learn through our failures. That's where we learn a lot. And so be ready for that and create a culture that says we want to try different things. We want to try them fast and we want people to be open. You're listening to Transform Talks, the podcast about global supply chain transformation. I'm Maria Villablanca, co-founder and CEO of the Future Insights Network, a fast-growing network of over 130,000 supply chain and manufacturing executives worldwide. Now on this show, I'm going to be interviewing and having conversations with some of the biggest names in supply chain and business, where we're going to be discussing topics around digitization, transformation, leadership, technology, business models, diversity, sustainability, and much, much more. Welcome back to Transform Talks. You know, I'm delighted to say that my guest this week is Richard Lloyd, one of the leading strategy change coaches in the supply chain space. And I have to say that I've been wanting to get Richard on the podcast for a while now, not only so that I could pick his brain on topics such as creating strategy and implementing transformation projects, but also so that I could get to know Richard himself a little better. You see, Richard is an individual who is very much driven by purpose and impact, and as a result, he's had a fascinating career. In fact, prior to working in supply chain, Richard wrote plays and even founded his own theater company, which saw him tour Spain. Following this, he traveled and worked in the Middle East and North Africa. And rather interestingly, it was while working on a development project in Egypt that Richard first considered working in supply chain and logistics. The rest, as they say, is history. Since then, Richard has gone on to work for both sides of the supply chain with companies such as Unilever, the Optel Group, and O9 Solutions. And more recently, he's been working as a strategy change coach to help leaders craft messages that will resonate throughout their business. Richard has also authored his own book, Successful Integrated Planning for the Supply Chain, Key Organizational and Human Dynamics, which provides an invaluable guide for those looking to implement change in their supply chain. During our conversation, Richard and I discuss why most transformation projects fail and the human factors that are holding the supply chain back. This and so much more on today's episode. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Richard. Welcome to Transform Talks. Great to be here. So, you know, I speak to a lot of different types of people. And um, what really strikes me as uh, uh, interesting, really, is just how varied uh, the stories are about how people uh, have led lives before their time in supply chain or what got them into supply chain. That's something that's always interesting to me. But I am pretty confident in saying that you probably have the most intriguing pre-supply chain story that I've ever come across. Now, from, from, from what I understand, you started your career, now correct me if I'm wrong, uh, you started it by founding an educational theater company, uh, and you, yeah, you, you toured Spain and put on plays that you wrote and directed. Now, here's the, here's the question I've got for you. If you had to write a play about the current state of the global supply chain, what is it? Drama? Musical? Comedy? Horror? I think we'd have to go with tragedy. <laughs> um, I was thinking about this and <laughs> um, yeah, you know, there's a play by J.B. Priestley called An Inspector Calls, which is often played in London and is, is, is quite a famous play. First time he performed it, 
um, was, well, it was performed, was in Russia in 1945. It's got a pretty strong social message that basically we all need to be responsible for what goes on and we need to be responsible for the welfare of others. And I think when you look at the global supply chain today, we, we don't have the full visibility, but we all know enough to know that there are things going on that shouldn't be going on in supply chain. Some of them are just wasteful, but some of them are genuinely unsustainable and unethical. And, you know, we're all involved. We're all in it. Um, and I think this is the big challenge that our generation has, is to sort that, that problem out. And do you think that the last couple of years, COVID has basically put a spotlight on supply chain and perhaps maybe shown us the cracks in the supply chain? I think it has, definitely, but more from a kind of availability of product point of view. Um, so the consumers are saying, oh, you know, there was a stock out in, 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 in supermarkets a bit, and they suddenly people are aware of what an important role supermarkets play and what a good job they do of making everything available. But I'm not sure if people have really thought back about the implications of, of what's going on further upstream in the supply chain. Um, which is really what I'm referring to is like where are we sourcing materials and who's doing the work right at the back end of the supply chain in the fields and in the factories um, in poor countries. Do you think that's a question we don't ask, we don't want to ask ourselves that uh, we don't want to look into? We're afraid to open up that box? People are looking into it and there are plenty of people who are starting to talk about this. Um, but we don't really know what the answer is because I think a lot of business models are based on um, consumerism and availability of products at a low price. Um, there's some people who are around saying um, we should be paying more for our food, but this is not a popular message at a time when everybody's feeling the, the pinch. Yeah, especially now. But, you know, we've obviously having a huge availability of materials, of goods of that are at our fingertips is has a cost. Uh, and maybe that's a cost that a lot of people are not willing to, to pay for. I mean, you, you hear about this all the time about bringing back manufacturing to the United States, right? Uh, but are people willing to pay double for their iPhone? Are they willing to pay double for their for you know a lot of the the goods? It's it's hard to see how this change will happen um, without it being forced somehow by some circumstances. Um, as long as there is the easy option, we with the current economic models that we have, um, I think it's going to be hard to change this. I've been reading a book called The Donut recently, talking about donut economics, challenging some of the fundamental principles that we have um, uh, in, in economics, uh, you know, the, the belief that in economic man being a selfish, uh, self-interested person. And, you know, there's plenty of behavioral economics that suggest that that actually isn't the case for most of the time for most people, but it's still the espoused model by most economics uh, um, theorists as along with things like uh, GDP growth as being the main indicator of economic health, which again, in donut economics, they challenge that. And uh, along with other you know, ideas like trickle down economics, which have proven not to be very effective, but are still espoused. Even quite recently in the UK, we had a, a brief leadership who espoused some of the very traditional, very outdated economic thinking, but it's still around. Um, but we need to think about systems dynamics rather than these linear um, economic models, which don't take into account things like delay, which is very fundamental that you need to think about how systems work over time and, and expecting rapid responses in supply chains and in economics. Uh, it's a mistake. So. But, but you know what? This goes in line with a lot of the ESG initiatives uh, that people are talking about, right? So 
um, something's going to have to give. We can't continue pursuing the same economic models or business models that we have for the last 50, 100 years. Uh, or actually, let's call it the post-war uh, economic models. Live, you know, we lived in a post-war era since uh, World War II that seems to be changing and shifting, um, whether it's down to geopolitical crisis, whether it's down to economic pressures, um, sustainability pressures, ESG pressures, etc. Times, they are a-changing. But are the economic models changing? Are the business models changing? Do, we, do you think that there's enough support from both the, well, from three parties, the government's consumers and businesses to want to change? Yeah, not enough, definitely. I mean, this is the challenge of being in supply chain. Really, we're there to deliver on, on the, and execute the business strategy. Um, although we have our supply chain strategies, essentially we're driven by what the business wants to do, what the business model is. And at the moment, when people talk about sustainable supply chain, it, it's, it's, we, we do the best we can. And we always have done, really. It's not a new thing in supply chain. We've always been looking at efficiency and trying to reduce waste. But if your fundamental concept of your business is sourcing materials in a way that isn't sustainable or making unsustainable products or making products that aren't really needed, um, the supply chain can only do so much to make your, your business um, sustainable. At the end of the day, the supply chain is a response. It's a function within an, a business, right? And they are guided by or we are guided by um, the board of directors, the shareholders and uh, the business model, right? Um, I, I, want, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about transformation because I know that this is something that you're particularly passionate about. I'm particularly passionate about. Um, transformation is a, it's an ongoing thing. It's not finite, right? We've been talking, hearing quite a lot about digital transformation, but about failures in transformation. Is this following on from the conversation we've just been having about antiquated economic models? What's, what's the reason behind transformation failures? So, I mean, I think there's, there's, there are some typical things that I think everyone will recognize as, as part of the problem. Um, I think they're symptoms, um, so I'll deal with them first. I mean, you can think about data. We all know that data availability and quality is a major issue because of technical systems. Hard to make do a transformation without good data. Sometimes the business case isn't very clear. People are doing something because they kind of think it's the right thing to do and they're not really sure why, which means that there's not that much focus and you, you struggle to get the availability of, of key people. Um, and, and so these are the sort of the kind of things that will happen but they're really symptoms of something more serious which is there's always more well, often a big incongruity in an organization when it wants to do a transformation um, there's a thing that that, uh, that in the world of change people like to talk about as this being a double bind so there are sometimes well-known secrets in organizations like for example organizations that can't accept failure um, and so if they can't accept failure, they find it hard to do projects because nobody will ever admit that anything's delayed. And so everyone's in a constant state of denial about the state of the project. Um, but when it's double bind, it means that the organization, that's a, an open secret, but nobody talks about it. And nobody talks about the fact that nobody talks about it. And even nobody talks about the fact that nobody talks about the fact that nobody talks about it. So it's, it's, yeah, so it gets deeply buried inside an organization. And so everybody knows the transition is going badly and that it's going to be late and not deliver value, but nobody can call it because the culture of that organization is risk averse. We don't make mistakes. The organizations that are quite happy to, to recognize that they've made errors and to do quick projects, quick interventions, let's see if this works. If not, we'll try something else and we're not gonna blame anybody. We're just trying to explore 
Those kind of organizations can do trans transformations quite easily. Organizations that are concerned about getting things right the first time and making sure everybody's accountable for their mistakes and things like that, they find transition really hard because you're going to make mistakes. You don't know what you really want to do. You're trying to explore, and it's very hard to explore if you get punished for making mistakes. Well, it's interesting when I'm picking up here from what you're talking about. At no point did you talk about technology. Uh, you know, you talk about really people here. Data, of course, we know that's that's a big issue. And one of the things that you've spoken about in the past is uh, the hum human factors, haven't you? And those are the things that are holding back supply chain. C can you expand on that a little bit more? Um, um, ab absolutely. I mean, I think the technology, obviously, it's got a lot better. When I first started out in supply chain, stuff was really buggy and performances were slow. There are still bugs. Technology isn't perfect. I mean, Excel is still a very good tool for doing things in supply chain, but there are some very good systems that, that do deliver value. But the problem is, is that people will use the technology because it's never going to be perfect, because partly because of data issues and also because software is still a relatively new industry and we still don't really know how to make it very, very clean for these open systems where there is a lot of variables to control. But systems can work perfectly well if the organization is behind it and if the people understand the challenge that, that is there of taking on board a new system. It, it change, requires big changes in people's behavior. I keep talking about data, but the truth is you go from being uh, a planner who uses Excel and the telephone and sends emails and kind of fixes problems in a firefighting mode to being someone whose job it is to spend a lot of time making sure that the data that goes into this complex new system is correct. And that's a big change in psychology and behavior. And that's hard to do. And most people say they want to do it, but don't really actually want to do it because it's not nearly as much fun. I mean, obviously, in the end, the role gets more interesting because once the data is clean, then you can focus on being what I call a supply chain centaur, which is where you have the horsepower of a system. And then you're the head on the front of the system taking more strategic decisions. But getting to that, which is a desirable state of being, means you have to do a lot of drudgery along the way in data management. And people often don't quite make it all the way through to see the benefits. And so their whole organization kind of falls back into the water and starts using Excel and the phone and email again. And there are many organizations that have been through this cycle three or four or five times in the last 30 years. Um, it's a big challenge to these systems. And, and I think we always underestimate this complexity of this change and I think that that might be the, the one big mindset challenge is getting leadership to understand that this is not a technical problem. This is a, an organizationally complex problem, which requires a lot of change in people's behavior. And as such, it's kind of what we would call in the world of change a wicked problem in the sense that it's not something that you ever actually finally solve with an elegant solution. Supply chains are always going to have pains and problems and you're constantly going to be dealing with them but you can make them a lot less bad if you use smart thinking. If you think that you can just kind of tick the box, bring in a cool, a cool bit of technology and solve your supply chain problems overnight, you're almost certainly going to fail because it's a lot more complex than that. Well, especially if you've got cultural mindset issues and institutional problems within your organization that are, you know, if you're, you can't layer technology on top of, say, bad processes or bad mindset, can you? Um, I want to I want to talk to you about your book now. Um, one of the principal motivations behind writing your book was to take a stand against those aforementioned mindsets, right? 
Uh, talk to me about the process about putting the book together. How did writing it help you confront your own biases when it comes to supply chain management? Well, um, so I, I uh, when I've been working in supply chain for about 15 years, I, I, I left one job and spent some time thinking about how you know, all these projects hadn't been so successful and realized that it was sort of the human side, but I didn't really have any frameworks for talking about that. Nor did most of the people I knew. We always used to say sort of, well, it's the change management and kind of shrug and then go back and carry on talking about technology because that's what we knew about. So I went back to college and studied at Oxford a course called Consulting and Coaching for Change, which was not really talking about change management. It was talking about the big ideas about how to change society. <clears throat> and after a year doing that, I was definitely even more confused than I was at the beginning. It took me about five or six years to digest what I'd learned on the course. And I had various fairly unsuccessful experiments of trying out ideas on the course, sometimes fairly explicitly in my job doing supply chain projects and developed uh, sort of, you know, got quite a few scars along the way doing that. And eventually thought, well, I need to sit down and, and write about this in order to get my thoughts into line and to sort of develop a model for how to go about uh, dealing with this, this challenge. Um, and so that, that's what I did. I worked through the book. I think one of my learnings reading The Donut recently was that the key is to lead with a model rather than have your model at the end of your book, which is what I did. So I'm thinking about doing another version of my book where I actually start with my, what I, I talk about, an agile platform for change, which I think is key. We need to use platforms for change and they need to be agile because we don't want to have you know, long waterfall projects. Uh, but that, that only makes it out in chapter 14. And I think I'm going to have another version where that's in chapter one. Um, I think that's the way that no, probably better communication with, with the reader. So my bias was partly I was trying to be too academic, I think, um, when actually this is a very vocational um, activity and, and really needs to be sold well as an idea. Um, but also I think that one of the things that I, I have a tendency to always blame the leaders and sort of the fish rots from the heads type mindset. And it often is, but it's not always. Sometimes it's the rank and file who aren't getting it. And the leaders are doing the best they can. And I see this. You see leaders who say they get it and they just don't know how to bring their people with them. And this particularly happens, I think, in, in developed economies. I see this a lot in the US where people are trying to do projects and they're the kind of the, the, the planning people in the, in the plant feel disenchanted. They don't really feel that they're in a very important area of the economy and are, are kind of uninspired. Um, and so... I mean, this, this is a challenge in, in, in developed Western economies. A lot of people who work in the supply chain perhaps don't feel that they have a very uh, well-paid or interesting job and you know, they're, they're not that engaged with the process. But that's, that's where storytelling comes in. As leaders, isn't it our responsibility to take people with us and sort of tell them the impact, albeit they, you know, they may be a small cog in a big wheel, but if they are without that cog, that wheel could fall off, right? So isn't it the responsibility of leaders to also take people with them, even if they get it and the rank and file doesn't get it? Another way of looking at this would be from a Marxist point of view and to say if your workers are alienated, um, they're not going to play ball with this because they're just going to say, look, I've got a, this is my job, but I'm not going to get all passionate about it. I'm just going to turn up and do my thing and go home. And then you're absolutely right. What can the leaders do to tell stories, to get people engaged, to feel that they're, they're part of something? Um, I don't think that, 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 for example, outsourcing and moving lots of the, of the company around into different organizations, I don't think that makes it easier. I like the story of the, the janitor who you know, swept the floor at NASA and said that he was part of the team sending the man to the moon because he was a NASA employee. When you have a lot of different people inside your supply chain who work for different and maybe sort of 
various tiers of outsourcing on them, um, I think that makes it harder to get people really engaged. There is something that people people need to to feel closely connected to something that's even if they don't own the means of production, at least they need to feel close to it. Yeah, but there's so many factors at play right now in terms of um, issues that a supply chain leader is facing. One of them being the whole talent gap, you know, and the fact that it's getting harder to get people to work in traditional sort of supply chain roles. Um, how do we change that? How do we deal with that? That's part one of my question. The second part is what other challenges do you see ahead for the supply chain leader? Well, I, I don't I don't know if I have an answer really for how to get people engaged into the supply chain. I, <laughs> it may work. The, the, I mean, you never heard supply chain up until a few years ago. I used to read The Economist end to end and hoping for an article about supply chain for years and there was never anything in it. Now you're seeing it there. So it's starting to become you know, on people's radar. And I am, you know, there are plenty of students going on courses to study supply chain. So maybe there will be a new generation of people who, who kind of get the idea that this is actually a career. Because back in the day, a lot of people kind of fell into it, having never really expected to work in it. Well, maybe that's where the whole idea of purpose comes in again. You know, if you can demonstrate the value that supply chains have on the world, on the economy, etc., maybe that's that's one of the ways. That's when you say that, that I think that's right. I mean, if people felt that they were being part of a, of a global supply chain that was really trying to get things right. Um, you look at companies like Fairphone, who've taken a very, very clear-eyed view on the environmental impact of, of supply chains and have thought about the reusability of their phones. I think they probably, um, they will find it easier to engage the new generation who are concerned about the planet. And in the end, I mean, the supply chain will be the answer to, to executing on saving the planet. We're going to have to, as we said at the beginning, we're going to have to change what we want supply chains to do. But once we do that, it'll be down to the supply chains to get it done. Okay, but finish. What about you know the other challenges down the line for supply chain leaders? I think there are probably, you know, we've talked about disruption a lot recently. Um, we can expect there to be more changes on the way. I think we lived through this period for about 20 years where people talked about the end of history and your steady state supply chain seemed to be a nice thing to do. I was working with Nokia in 2003 and four, where their steady state supply chain was making a lot of phones and it was really running well. Um, but then they got hit by the iPhone. And I think there's gonna be that kind of disruption um, and worse for supply chains. And so we're gonna to have to really be ready for this. And this brings into question how important it is to have the perfectly optimized steady state supply chain when you know there are going to be disruptions. This will vary a lot by product. Some products probably will carry on fairly steadily, but a lot of areas we're going to see change. So we're going to have to embrace change and disruption and, and thinking up, thinking about how to build a team and to have the tools and the processes to deal with that will probably be the key thing on most supply chain guys. Uh, or um, agenda when they're looking now for the next 15, 20 years. I think you're right. I think I think we only know what we know, right? I mean, if you think about three years ago, we wouldn't have been able to predict that the whole world would shut down for a, you know, a virus. And uh, we're still dealing with this right now. And then we've got war in Ukraine. Who knows what 2023 is going to look like? I mean, I'm, I'm kind of a little bit uh, um, I wouldn't say I have a bit of trepidation at uh, celebrating the new year, but thinking mm, I'm I don't know what next year is going to have in store for us. But I think that's the the key to the supply chain leaders having something an, an agile business that can respond to whatever comes comes our way. Um, I I, I want to end on the following quote: Amateurs focus on their successes, professionals on their failures. 
Bearing that in mind, what, what so-called failures do supply chain leaders as a whole have to focus on to improve uh, moving forward? Anything, except that you're going to fail. There's a great thing that uh, in, in the world of uh, agile development where one of the guys said, you know, it, you know, plan to throw away your first model because you will anyway. Um, we know that, you know, learning to fail and embracing it is so important. And I, I mean, our education system doesn't, doesn't dwell enough on this. It's more about getting stuff right than it is about people exploring and learning. We learn through our failures. That's where we learn a lot. And so be ready for that and create a culture that says we want to try different things. We want to try them fast and we want people to be open and to explore and to share. When I, I studied archaeology a long time ago, and the first thing we learned was about a guy who went and studied a place called Minnie's Camp, um, which was a, an American Indian, um, a Native American Indian uh, camp, which was about 80 years old. And he went there and he dug it up and did all the things you do as an archaeologist. And he sort of came up with this theory about what had been going on. Um, and then he found, came across a very old lady called Minnie, who'd actually lived there when she was a child. So he went back with her and said, right, so, you know, over here was the cooking area and over here was their area, right? And he got everything wrong. And the interesting thing was that he then went and still published the paper and said, look, this is what happened. This is my story. I tried all these things and I was completely wrong. And then he could learn from that experience. And that's always stuck with me as, as an approach to, to trying things out. We should, we, we will make mistakes and when we make mistakes, we'll learn from them. Um, and so I think that's, that, that's something that I'm hoping that we can, we can do because as long as we cover up our mistakes, we don't learn and then they remain in the background as this thing that we know is there, but we're not really living with it. The lesson here is if there is a problem, tell people about it. Don't be afraid to fail. So I, pre I appreciate your uh, sentiment and I hope that our listeners will listen to that and will take it on board. Um, Richard, I want to thank you for being here. I want to thank you for sharing your story and uh, for I'm really interested in all your colorful past. So thank you so much for for sharing some of those stories with us. Uh, Maria, thank you for having me on. It's always a pleasure to talk about this. And, uh, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. And for those of you listening at home, we'll catch you at the next one. Thank you.